Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, Pastor of Mission and Worship here at LMPC, and this is a Pillar and Ground Confession episode. In our Confession episodes, we seek to understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. And this week, we are concluding our study of Chapter 6, which is titled, Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment Thereof. And we're looking at its final two paragraphs, paragraphs 5 and 6. Just by way of reminder, the first two paragraphs of chapter 6 recapped the story of the fall. Everyone knows that something is wrong with the world. The question is, what happened? Paragraphs 1 and 2 of chapter 6 tell us the biblical answer to that question. Adam and Eve decided that they would define good and evil for themselves and ate of the forbidden fruit. And the effect of that choice on them was that they lost communion with God. Sin polluted every part of them, mind, body, and soul. They became totally depraved. And they received a death sentence. From dust they came, to dust they would return. Paragraphs 3 and 4 of chapter 6 then went on to explain the effects of Adam and Eve's choice on the rest of us. And here we discuss the doctrine of original sin. Because Adam was our representative, every human being born of Adam and Eve by ordinary generation, that is the usual way, inherited their sin nature. We are born sinners. None of us are righteous. None of us seek after God, as Paul writes in Romans 3. In short, we sin because we are sinners. And now we turn our attention to paragraph 5, which talks about sin in the life of the Christian. Let me read it, and then we can unpack it together. During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all its expressions are in fact really sin. After all of the discussion of sin in this chapter so far, Westminster anticipates a question. Okay, but what about after you become a Christian? Once I'm united to Christ, does the sin nature still exist? Or to phrase it differently, can I be a Christian and still be a sinner? This is a good question because the scriptures really do teach us that when we're united to Christ by faith, something new has happened to us and in us. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or in Romans 6.4-7, listen to all this new and old language. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul uses that old and new language a lot, often talking about putting off the old self and putting on the new. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So with all of that old and new language, we can sympathize with the person who might assume, okay, so now that I'm a new creation in Jesus, then surely the sin nature is gone. And if we look at these verses in isolation, we can see how someone might adopt the belief of what's called perfectionism, 
which is the teaching that a believer is in this life, or at least may become in this life, not merely a new creature in Christ, but a new creature from which all sin is absent. In fact, I remember when I was a student at Ole Miss, there was a street preacher on campus in front of the student union at one point. He would often come by during the spring semester when the weather was nice and lots of people were walking by. And one of his big claims that he would make regularly was that he had not sinned in 10 years. This man was holding to this view of perfectionism. The problem with that teaching is that it contradicts other parts of Scripture. And it's here that I want to pause and remind us of what we covered in our early episodes on chapter 1 of the Confession about Scripture. And if you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Brian's teaching on those. Chapter 1 taught us that Scripture is infallible. It's without error. It cannot err because it is the Word of God who cannot and does not err. What this means on a practical level is that we would expect the Bible to be consistent with itself and not to contain any actual contradictions. Now, I say actual there because the Bible has many apparent contradictions. People love to pull these out. But if you look at them, they often disappear upon further study and reflection. You get a little more context once you understand what's really happening. Many of them are not uh, as obvious as they seem at first. So as we interpret any one piece of Scripture, we always have to keep in mind how it fits within the rest of what Scripture tells us. As the Confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. In other words, we interpret Scripture by looking at other Scriptures. We must always understand the Bible in relation to itself. We can never proceed with an interpretation of one verse of the Bible that would explicitly contradict the correct interpretation of other verses. What this means for our discussion today is that we cannot cherry-pick the verses to make the case for perfectionism without considering what else the Scriptures teach. And the problem for the perfectionism argument is that it is expressly contradicted throughout the Scriptures. So John writes in 1 John 1, 8-10, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is nowhere in us. James writes in James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways. In fact, see the same thing affirmed in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. So this is a consistent testimony across the Bible. We are sinners. And as we stack these verses up against one another, we can almost begin to despair and think, Well, okay, which is it? Are we new creations or are we sinners? And the confession tells us that the Bible teaches us that we are both. Paul says this clearly in Galatians 5, 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we see from the Scriptures that the confession is right when it says, During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. 
even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ. The confession is going to spend much more time on this reality in chapter 13 on sanctification. So for now, I'll just note the subtle bits of hope that paragraph 5 gives us. First of all, it notes that our sin is pardoned and we are putting it to death. So though sin remains for the believer, we take comfort knowing that Jesus has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And we take comfort knowing that by the Holy Spirit, we are able now to die more and more to our sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. Its power has been broken, even though its presence remains in us. For the believer, our relationship with sin is much like that of the Allied forces to the Axis powers during World War II, after D-Day and the landing at Normandy. After that, effectively, the war was decided. Battles remained, skirmishes were still being played out, and there was lots of fighting and even suffering and death on the Allied side. But the outcome was decided. The war, in effect, was over. For the Christian, the outcome is decided. The war is won, but there are still battles and skirmishes to be had with an, with an enemy that will not surrender. Our sin remains, and it can still trouble us, but it will not ultimately win. Chapter 6 ends with a reminder about the consequences of sin. So this is paragraph 6 of chapter 6. Every sin, both original and actual, is a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary to it. Therefore, every sin in its own nature brings guilt upon the sinner, on account of which he is bound over to the holy wrath of God and the curse of the law. Consequently, he is subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Paragraph 6 reminds us that every sin violates God's law and brings guilt upon us. And since we are guilty sinners, we deserve God's wrath, the law's curse, and life's death. For many of us, the idea of God's wrath is an uncomfortable one. And yet, I think we all know what it is to be angry at someone who has hurt someone or something that we love. I suspect many of us know, too, what it means to be angry with someone we love because of something wrong that they have done, some way that they've hurt another person. For instance, when one of our children hurts another of our children, we're angry at the offending child both because we love that child and because we love the one he or she has hurt. We hate to see the one harmed, and we hate to see the other doing the harming. We hate to see what they're becoming. Our God is angry at our sin because by it we hurt Him, His world, and one another. He hates that we harm others and what we are becoming as we harm others. In other words, as Brian has said on previous episodes, God's wrath is not contradictory to His love. It is an expression of His love. So we are under God's wrath, but the confession says our sin brings with it the curse of the law. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Like Adam and Eve, we too will die. And the confession reminds us that we are also subject to all the miseries that come with the fall. Alienation from God, the frustrations and pains of life in this broken world. And if we do not turn to Jesus, Jesus himself warns us in Matthew 25 that on judgment day, he will say, depart from me you cursed, into the eternal fire. This would all be terrible news were it not for the glorious good news of the gospel. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we could not live. He experienced all the miseries of this life. He drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross for us, and He died that we might live. And so while this chapter of the confession is focused in on the bad news, it's justly reminded us that we are great sinners. In the coming chapters, 
it is going to unpack in glorious detail a better truth. We may be great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us for future episodes.